0: Are you in a leadership role trying to figure out how to convince others to change their mind? Have you ever wondered why is leading and influencing others so darn hard? Are you looking for practical answers to these two vital questions? If so, welcome to my podcast, Closing the Gap with Denise Cooper. I'm your host, Denise Cooper, and I am a storyteller. I interview thought leaders and people just like you who are learning and practicing the art and expanding on the science of leadership. Listen as my guests and I talk about what it takes to be a remarkable leader in the 21st century. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening to everyone. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much for tuning in today to my podcast. You're listening to Denise Cooper and the podcast is called Closing the Gap. You know, I'm going to ask you up front, if you like it, please hit the follow, Um, look for us every week. Um, We usually produce on Thursday so that you don't miss an episode because the guests are so interesting. And I know I say that all the time, I have the best guests around, mainly because they are so open, honest, and vulnerable. And we get into some of those questions that you wish you asked and you don't always ask. And today is one of those days where I think this is out of my norm. My guest is Alex Waite. He's an unusual guy. He's had a life where he's been on a a journey, at least recently. Probably like many of us that were coming out of the pandemic, of you know, what do I want to be when I grow up? And you know, (laughs) what was what what I did before ain't working for me no more. And his journey is one of self-discovery. But he's also interested, and this is why I I have him on the podcast: is he's interested in social justice from a very different lens. Alex Waite says, introduces himself like this. Um, I'm a white, I'm a straight white guy with a lot to learn. I feel drawn to the space of social justice, but struggle with my role, what my role should be in that space as a straight white man. The results of all that wrestling was epics podcasts and helping people tell their stories. And that is how we came across Alex in his podcast. And if you haven't listened to it, I, I really do encourage you to you know, click through a couple of his uh, podcasts because it is the guests he has, the stories he tells are very, very interesting. He goes on to say, I believe that the foundation of hate and discrimination in our world is a lack of understanding of those who are different from ourselves. If we are able to open ourselves up to hear the story of someone else, then we are able to glimpse their humanity. Which is so easily hidden and lost today, helping us do better, understanding them and their struggles, and hopefully allow us to be more accepting and compassionate towards others. That's Alex, and I'm gonna I'm not I'm gonna stop there because he's now um, a, a business owner, and uh, he he talks a little bit in in his podcast about his own journey with mental health and ADHD um, and the role that that has played. And uh, both of these are what we would consider to be either um, invisible um, disabilities or unapparent disabilities. And that's one of the things that, you know, we, we really need to pay attention to. So with that, Alex, how you doing today?
1: I am so good, Denise. Thank you so much for having me on today. I really appreciate it.
0: Not a problem. Not a problem. Interesting stories is what I want to tell Um, from a very human point of view. And this is just a conversation to help people ask questions that they wouldn't normally ask. So I didn't talk a lot about you because I really wanted you to tell your story. So tell us something about you.
1: Well, something about me, the most important thing about me is that I am married to the most amazing woman in the world. And she has given me two beautiful baby boys. Um, well, not babies anymore. We're, we're allowed to say that as long as we want, I'm told, but two and four years old. Um, so my hands are full most of the time. Um, and uh, the journey of being husband and father is at the core of everything that I'm doing. And it's uh, it's a lot of fun and it's a lot of work. And I'm never tired ever.
0: Well, anymore. Then that truly that <laughs> must be the... the uh... The passionate side of it, because if you're really doing the things that you love to do, it doesn't really feel like work, does it?
1: It doesn't. Some, there are times where it, it is a lot of work, but uh, I wouldn't trade it for anything.
0: Oh, I love it. I love it. So talk to me a little bit about how you got where you are now. Uh, the pandemic hit and, mm-hmm. you know, what what happened?
1: How long do you have? I mean, there's a lot. Of <laughs> just uh, yeah, so I, uh, I have had... um what my my father has labeled as a compassion career, nothing very specific, um, necessarily, but lots of work in nonprofit organizations, certain trying to serve different populations. I spent a lot of time working in homeless shelters, treatment facilities, after school programs for high school kids. Worked in schools, all sorts of different ways like that. My my father and I started a nonprofit uh, that works down in Mexico, doing um, helping doing educational work with an impoverished neighborhood of students there. And I've been going on a mission trips since I was, you know, 13, you know, 16 was my first time down in Mexico. I did a study abroad there where I taught English and um, I really wanted to partner my life with making a difference. Yeah. And that's how I got to where I am. It, it got to the point where, you know, during the pandemic, I'm sure I'm not alone in this. It was really hard. I got laid off from the school I was working at and Started working at an after school program after months of unemployment. I got laid off there and have been trying to find my journey in that. And I've always been drawn to the space of social justice, as you said. And I've always really wrestled with what does what my role look like in that as a straight white man? Because I don't want to take up that space if it's not if it's not appropriate for me to do so, if it's mm-hmm. not making a positive impact on that. Mm-hmm. And I've struggled with that a lot. I actually for a time was wanting to go into ministry and and didn't know if that was the right place for me to do that work or not. But ultimately what came out of that with losing my job during COVID, it was starting my podcast. My podcast is called the Epics Podcast, Epics with an S. And it's just about telling people stories who are different from me. And I have all sorts of amazing guests on who tell me about their lives and some of the struggles they've gone through. And most of the time, it's not something, anything, anything close to what I've had to struggle with mm-hmm. going through in my life. And, and it's just me trying to put my learning journey out there. I don't, I don't think that I know uh, all the answers to any of these questions, but I'm willing to ask, ask them and I'm willing to be wrong. And I think that's really important. And that's what I'm trying to do.
0: You know, it, you, it sounds to me like you've been very intentional um, about being directionally right, not quite sure what it looks like on, you know, when you get there, um, right. but opening yourself up to be able to take one step, one step, one step and kind of self-correct as necessary. One of the things that, you know, we've talked about previously is that you don't really like to label yourself as a social justice expert <laughs> or a white savior. Well, right. I, you know, I, I know people use the word white savior. I think um, benevolent racist is a better way of putting mm. it. Where we're trying to do the right thing, but it right. comes off in the wrong way,
1: kind right. of,
0: you know. So why why did you pick that up? what What does what does that mean to you?
1: To me, what it what it what that means to me in terms of I, I like the way you said that benevolent, benevolent racist. That was that's a much more eloquent way of saying it. I just say you know white savior because it feels more blunt a, a lot of the times. But yeah, uh, to to me, like I just I don't want to come in and. Act like I can solve your problem. Mm-hmm. I, I, I There's a point in my life where, like I said, I was looking into going into ministry as an avenue for my social justice work. And I got to the point where I was like, I don't think I could ever be comfortable leading this type of organization
0: mm-hmm.
1: because I don't want to be over some of these other people who are misrepresented. Mm-hmm. So, for example, the church, especially the church where I'm in, in Denver, Colorado, the leaders of the church look like me. Mm-hmm. And the reason I didn't feel like that was the right place for me to pursue my work was, I don't think they should look like me. Maybe a couple of them. Yeah. But in general, they shouldn't all look like me. And so that's where I kind of took off on this different path. And I, my podcast is a bit different because most of the time you start a podcast based on your expertise, based on what you know really well, I I'm taking a different approach and Mm -hmm. maybe that's risky. Who knows? But my approach is that I'm coming in as the learner, not the expert.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And, I have people come in who are experts on themselves Mm -hmm. and their stories. Mm -hmm. And I want to learn about that. And I'm putting my journey out there. Mm -hmm. And there might be times where I ask the wrong question and I, and maybe it's insensitive because I was ignorant to how that would land. But my, my intention is to not edit that out, to make myself look better, but rather to leave that in, allow myself to be corrected and have other people experience that too. Mm -hmm. Because I know there are other people who are like me, who, who want to be, want to do better, who want to understand things that we've never experienced so that we can, you know, treat people better and make a better impact on the world. But we don't know how. And so that's, that's what I tried to set out to do was, was to do that through stories. Cause I think stories are so impactful when, when someone's telling their story, you know, like you read in my bio, it humanizes them
0: Mm -hmm.
1: and it's really easy for us to dehumanize each other in the world that we're in today. You know, if you look back on any of the elections we had recently or any sort of dividing topic, you know, you can go on social media and, and see the dehumanization we hide behind our usernames and can easily dehumanize someone regardless of of who they are, or what they look like. A lot of times we don't even know. And I, I believe that if you listen to someone's story that has the ability to really break down that dehumanization and, and start to, Create a person that you can care about, mm-hmm. that, you, that you can relate with. Yeah, in some sort of way.
0: yeah, and it, it's interesting because um, I've had a career that oftentimes put me as the one, the only, as a first, right? right? Mm-hmm. And um, you could, you could actually, I can actually feel when they stop seeing me as the group or the category that they stuck right. me in and saw me as a person, right? And I think for many um, people who have been traditionally marginalized or not in power or setting the, the 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 statue of power, that's a tiring thing because you do it all the time with right. almost everybody that you're you're working with um, at some point or some level. One of the questions I wanted to talk to you about is what in what one of the interesting things as I was listening to some of the stories that you had on your podcast is not just that you. You know, you allow yourself to just be honest, and sometimes it lands well, and sometimes you have to be corrected about what you're talking about. But that's one of the topics now that is so contentious mm. when in workspaces, in particular, managers, particularly, are stepping on eggshells, and it's very tiring to them to constantly be tr- trying to be right.
1: Yeah. You know, we have an obsession with it. being right.
0: Yeah, yeah, and not offend people. Mm-hmm. Um, and to, you know, I was hired to solve problems kind of thing. What advice do you if, now that you've done you know the podcast for a little while, what advice do you have to straight white men who are trying to navigate this journey, but also are fearful that they're gonna make a mistake and get a backlash?
1: Well, the first thing is, that is my hardest thing to do, R- regardless of how much it's easy for me to come on your podcast and say, I will leave it in. If I, if I, I won't edit it out. It's easy for me to come on to say that it's easy to say that I'm not afraid to ask the right questions. It's hard to actually do that. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the times when I'm interviewing someone or having a conversation with someone, whether it be on my podcast or in real life, I am trying to say the right, th- I'm always trying to say the mm-hmm. right thing. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that's always necessarily the right way to do it. And, and I'm saying that because that's, that's what I do. I qualify almost everything I say it drives me nuts, drives my wife even more nuts. But I, it's still my biggest struggle is trying to say the right thing. And not that we shouldn't try to say the right thing, but we, sh- we shouldn't let that hang us up. Mm-hmm. If, if it's the difference between asking a question that's hard because you're afraid of the answer, or you're afraid you're going to say it wrong or not asking it, not asking it is the wrong choice. Mm. Uh, and and I feel like that's kind of the differentiator to me. And there are times when maybe not asking the question is the right thing. And, you, and depending on the time and place and who's around, maybe you can ask in a different way. But my, always, my thing was the, the times I found myself always not asking a question that maybe I should have was because I didn't want to burden the person I was asking. If I'm talking mm-hmm. to you and I want to ask a question about what it's like being a black woman, I I am often very concerned that I'm putting that burden on you for exactly the reason that you just said, that mm-hmm. you have to do that all the time. And that shouldn't be your responsibility.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I remember in, in the, in the aftermath of George Floyd's death, I reached out to a lot of my uh, African-American friends, especially on social media and stuff. And I had several people who didn't respond. I had several people who gave amazing feedback and I had some people that I kept asking too many questions. And I I have one guy who told me, he goes, look, this isn't my job. And that was one of the most embarrassing things to me. It's not, Mm -hmm. and this is an individual, I don't even know him that well, but we're Mm -hmm. friends on social media and he was very generous, gave me a lot of information, but I took advantage of that. And I think it's really hard to to find that line, but we're not going to find that line by being being silent and not asking the questions. We're going to find that line by going too far sometimes, and we need to be okay with being told, Hey, that's, that's too much. Or, Hey, that's not, I'm not the right person. I, hey, that's not my job. Okay. And I think that's, that's the hardest thing for us because in this culture of want of being obsessed with being right, mm-hmm. we don't want to be told that mm-hmm. I don't want to open myself up to that criticism,
0: mm-hmm.
1: but that's one of the things that I think I've realized from a position of privilege and in, in most of the settings that I'm in is that I need to be open to that to allow other people the space that they deserve as well.
0: What, um, as you think back on it, what was one of the questions that was most embarrassing for you? toughest, You know, that kind of tough
1: question (laughs) of, Oh, I really want to know, but. Sometimes it's basic. I mean, I I don't know if this is the most embarrassing. It's one of the first ones that came to mind. I had one in my most recent interview, I had a a gay man who is femme presenting and that's Mm -hmm. how he described himself. Mm -hmm. And he says femme presenting. I'm pretty sure I know what that means. And this is one of the times where like, I could just assume what it means and not ask about it. Or I can ask the clarifying question, which could potentially be embarrassing because I should know that Mm because I have a podcast about whatever. So I asked him, I said, can you tell me what femme presenting means? And his answer was consistent with what I had said, which could have made me more embarrassed because I shouldn't have asked it. But I I think it's It's just any of those situations where it's okay to not know it. And it's better. I think it's better to ask and be shot down even than to not ask at all. And that's how because that's how you find where the line is to ask too many questions. Because mm-hmm. it we do need to respect the the boundaries of of people who are you know doing all this work, whether it's their responsibility or not. And and it's it, yeah, I think sometimes it's the most embarrassing is when when you don't know or you yeah. and you have to admit, I don't know what that means.
0: Yeah, yeah. That's that's interesting. And in the workplace where we're, you know, and even and. You know, like the grocery store and whatnot, yeah. that's that feeling that we should be able to look and see and know exactly what a person is and and be correct, whatever that means. Right. Right.
1: There um, was a, of t- I'm sorry. I didn't mean, to interrupt. I, there was a time when I I was at I think it was the zoo or something like some 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 public like that with uh, with my children. And my son was, I think, three years old at the time. And there was in whatever line we were in, there was a young black woman in front of us who had very large hair and, and color streaks in it. And he whispered to me, I really like her hair.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I really wrestled with that for a moment. It's like, is it appropriate for me to say something to her? Okay. Should I not? Cause I don't understand. I know that, I know that hair is very important to, to black women, mm-hmm. to a lot of black women, but I don't, I don't know all the reasons as to why. Mm-hmm. And I, and I decided in the moment I was like, "Hey, my son said you have really pretty hair," mm-hmm. and and I tried to do it in a way that she didn't have to respond to it. She just said, "Oh, thank you." And I also put the blame on my son so that if it was <laughs> if it was a bad question, it was the three year old's fault. Get mad at him. Yeah. Uh, maybe I could have done that differently, but, but I mean, but it was yeah. true too.
0: It's yeah. your son's question. Yeah, but exactly. it's an okay thing, you know. Yeah,
1: K- kids are curious, right? Right. Exactly. But it can be uncomfortable to say that to a stranger.
0: Yeah. 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 How do you, you know, so when you're thinking about guests and asking people to be on and whatnot, how do you create safe spaces for them?
1: Um, The first thing I do is I I want to give them full, full authority over their story. And so I, I, I say to them, if there's anything that we talked about beforehand, I say this beforehand and afterwards, if there's anything we talk about that you don't want in there, that's up to you Mm -hmm. and we'll take that out. Mm -hmm. Because it's your story. It's my podcast, but it's your story, and I'm just, a, uh, I'm just, I'm just a part of the journey with getting your story out there. And that's the most important thing to me. Is if I if I press too far and they're uncomfortable, that's not something I want to release. Right. Even though they've already agreed to come on the podcast and whatever they say can go on, but that's not the point. It, the point is it's their story and they have full authority over their story. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the other thing I try to do is um, I try to I, I I let them guide it. It's, it's what they want to talk about. And I have questions based off of that, but it's, it's up to them. And I find people, you know, for, in all sorts of different ways, but, but I'm, like I said, I'm drawn to people who, who are different from me that I don't understand.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: um, I think, I think what the best thing I try to do to create safe spaces is, is just say those things up front. Say, Hey, if I say something that offends you, please correct me. Um, and inviting that. So they mm-hmm. don't have to feel like they have like, they don't have to feel that they have to act like they're okay with it. Right. Because that's me suppressing how they feel. Right. And I'm sure that's happened to a lot of them before. Mm-hmm. And, and if you invite that from my position, if I'm inviting you to correct me, they will. And they'll, and, and when I do say something offensive, I hope that that, that they will know that that comes from a place of ignorance rather than malintent. Or curiosity. And, yes, exactly.
0: Yeah. Yeah, curiosity is a wonderful thing, except when it, you know, and I, we, we get into these kinds of spaces, right? Where right. curiosity leads to embarrassment. And, and, and it means that we have to be vulnerable mm-hmm. to get the answer. I, what I love is, is that, you know, a lot of companies in their work to onboard employees or DEI programs, they, they've done a lot of listening circles and caucuses and just create, trying to create spaces where um you know people can build connection one and yet i think the struggle that i hear over and over no matter what whether it's you know all the same which is no such thing because we all come from different <clears throat> backgrounds and there's no business that doesn't have people from the north the south the east the west immigrants you know transplants whatever you want to call it Right. Um, they they may look white or whatever, but they are very different and they have apparent and unapparent or visible, invisible abilities and disabilities that that go unnoticed or mm-hmm. talked about badly. So that it's kind of a weird thing that we think that diversity only lives with that which visually shows up. Right. In the first place. Right. Mm-hmm. The thing of making it safe and how you want us in your selection, but You have this conversation with people that gives them permission Mm -hmm. to say, you know, I'm uncomfortable right? and not take it personal. Just, oh, okay. Oh, oh, then thank you. And you have this relationship pretty quickly that also allows you to kind of back up and say, could you help? Why was that uncomfortable? Doesn't have to be a long thesis Mm -hmm. on the answer, but it helps you go through this understanding. Is that about right?
1: Yeah, I think the only thing I would I would say that's a little bit different from my perspective is I don't want to give them permission to correct me. I want to invite them to because okay. it's not it's not up to me to give them it's I don't own that permission, that space. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of us, especially a lot of us white men, feel with probably subconsciously most of the time that we own a lot of these spaces. Especially if I'm if I'm hosting a podcast and I'm the one hosting the interview. I, I could very easily feel like I own that space. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times I probably do, but mm-hmm. I'm, I try as often as possible to not, to not uh, force ownership, if that makes sense and, and invite them to own the space with it. Cause, because like I said, it is their story and that's, what's important. And, this, and it's not just specific to my podcast. I, I shouldn't have to give permission to you in any sort of situation to correct me. You should be able to do that no matter what, because if, I've said something offensive. It's it. You don't need permission to tell me that. Mm-hmm. But in our society, it feels that way. Yeah. And so I, I would just, um, I was a language major, so I, I, apologize if it feels ticky-tacky to change that word. But I, I, I would like to change that word from permission to an invitation.
0: No, I love it. I love it. I love it. Because it does feel like when you say it, a balancing of um, the dynamics between mm-hmm. people. Um, out of it. It's a difference in, in many ways. It's the same as equity, not equity, um, empathy and compassion. You know, empathy is, is feeling what somebody else feels where compassion is understanding what someone feels and taking actions to be able to support them uh, through what it is, whether it's, I'm trying to support you and your growth and development as, you know, in your career or your kids or the school system or life in general, It's what can I do to show up to be supportive, help me understand your perspective, that kind of thing. Right. Yeah, that's good. That's good. So one of the things that I would imagine helps you do this is you have ADHD and, Mm -hmm. you know, you're not you know, we're just coming to understand what that means. Yeah. How has that helped you or helped you navigate the world differently and to particularly be in this space? because? You're going around the world, and, and it's it. As I listen to you say, "Oh, I went to Mexico. I did this," and I'm a language <laughs> major. You know, it's that doesn't show up necessarily as how people perceive people with ADHD.
1: Yeah, I think it's interesting because you you touched on this earlier. With AD, me having ADHD is not something you can see on me. It's mm-hmm. not it's not a visual difference between us. And I, like you said, I don't think anyone's really understood ADHD without having it. Until pretty recently, and I think a lot of us still don't. And part of the reason for that is I don't understand it entirely. Okay. And because it's different for everyone. My wife has ADHD, and she's her ADHD is very different from mine. And the perception a lot of times that that is thrown out there about people with ADHD is that I'm distracted by the squirrel outside my window. You know that I can't focus on the on you talking to me right in front of me. Sometimes that can be kind of true. I was in a video call the other day and I had to stop and say, there's a big hawk right outside the window. I'm sorry. I did not hear what you said. So sometimes that is true, but <laughs>
0: that would be true for me. So <laughs> but exactly,
1: That's what I was. I don't
0: thinking. know that, that I was going to say. I'm not sure that <laughs> <laughs> shiny bottle syndrome is what I call that. <laughs> right,
1: But, but that's not what all ADHD is. Right. Yeah. And so for me, my, my ADHD presents is I, I have a hard time being motivated to do things okay. unless I feel passionate about them. Okay. And so that's part of the reason why I've started a business because working for people is very hard because, especially when I was working in the nonprofit industry, because I have, I have lots of opinions and I like to share those opinions. And when people disagree with them, I think they're wrong. And <laughs> that's again, vo- I'm not again, sure
0: that's-, <laughs> <Go ahead. laughs>
1: it's not, and that's not uncommon, but yes. <laughs> for example, if I'm told to do something and I don't agree with it, it makes it me having ADHD. It's way harder for me to just shut up and do it. Okay. And when it came to working in the nonprofit space, the reason I was working in in this compassion career, as I've called it, is because I want to make a difference. And if I'm being told to look at the population that I'm serving or at in a way that I'm not comfortable with, I can't, I can't follow through with the tedious tasks that don't interest me. Right. You know, I I worked in a I worked in a homeless shelter and I ended up leaving because I felt like the people who ran the shelter view, view the residents as more numbers than the people. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't comfortable with that.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And, and that's how my ADHD presents. It's, it's hard for me to do simple things that I'm not passionate about, or that make me feel anxious, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Call, calling the doctor is something every single person here has done and can do. And a lot of people listening to this might be able to do that super easy. I have to work myself up for sometimes hours or days to call the doctor. hmm And if you are a person with ADHD, you know that there's not a system that's set up well for us. We need ADHD medication to get diagnosed with ADHD and then be prescribed medication. And that's not how it works. Yeah. I I recently got remedicated a few years ago and it took me from the time I decided to get remedicated and, and all that, I had to get a new psychiatrist. I, you know, go through my primary care first and get a new psychiatrist. And uh, it took me between the moment of deciding that I wanted to get medication and the moment i had the medication in my hand was 8 months oh my goodness and part of that is on me because i it took me so long to to call whatever but part of it is because i had to wait for the primary care psychiatrist and then they wouldn't prescribe me the medication and my primary care would only provide you know provide medication for a limited time while I found a new psychiatrist who wasn't accepting new patients for another three months, Right, you know, all of these different, and then insurance, I don't, don't even start on insurance. It's yeah. like, it's like ADHD kryptonite. Right. So, right, right, um, and I know it's a pain for everybody else too. So I'm not trying to, to downplay that, but it, it, the best way I can describe my ADHD is it's hard to do things that seem easy.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And that is a really hard thing. Because no one, because you can't see, like you said, you can't see that Mm -hmm. it's not, it's not very relatable. Mm -hmm. If I tell you that I I have a hard time picking up the phone and making that simple phone call, I don't have a great reason as to why. And that's hard for people to understand. It's hard for me to understand. Right. And so going through, going through life in, in this way makes it easy, easier for me to, to understand people who go through things that are hard. Yeah. Because there's a lot of things that are hard for me that shouldn't be hard for me.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: and while it's not the same as being discriminated against because of the color of my skin or because mm-hmm. of my gender, I am, I've also experienced that. And mm-hmm. so it it's, it helps me to open my eyes to the connections if,
0: mm-hmm. if and the pain sense. on the other end. Yeah. Right. And the pain on the other end. And, you know, there's, if we're not careful, there are conversations that I feel, so this is a Denise's opinion, right? Um, marginalize us by the amount of pain perceived my Mm -hmm. pain is worse than your pain therefore we shouldn't talk about you or i haven't been you know you haven't been in this situation long enough to have the right to you know feel pain or to be at the table when we we have all this over here that really needs to get taken care of and so it's it's interesting how our minds tend to compartmentalize and rank Mm -hmm. you know immediately oh yeah uh, how this how this pain looks up. And what I love about some of the stuff that we talked about, you know the way you introduce yourself is is that it really is about how do we humanize. Mm-hmm. How do we see each other as humans first with differences that give us different stories, but also give us lessons in how we can grow. You know my definition of people say, you know what's your definition of a leader? A leader is someone who influences through their own personal growth. If you're not growing, you can't be a leader. If you're not learning, you can't be a leader. Mm -hmm. The days of when we had leaders who were superheroes, if we ever had them, um, are are long gone, right? Because the world is so complex. It's changing so fast. It's so interconnected now in ways that it wasn't interconnected even just 10 years ago. That Mm -hmm. one person can't be it. One person can't all, all the knowledge, nor can they do
1: all the work. Right. Exactly. And that and not only that, but that should be a good thing because we live in this era, especially when you talk about like social media and how destructive that can be. Mm -hmm. It's not all bad. Social media and the ability to connect with people that are far apart from each other is a really positive thing Mm -hmm. because I live in Denver. It would take me a long time to come interview at your office. Yes. But over Zoom, we can do it. Yeah. And so these are positive things. It's positive that lots of voices have access to the masses. Mm-hmm. So we need we need to acknowledge that as positive when it is.
0: Yeah. And, and figure out ways to use that, right?
1: Right. Exactly. You know,
0: it's the whole hybrid work thing now, because we're all talking about, you know, there's a whole segment of people who are saying, I'm not going back in the office. That's right. You know, for lots of reasons. So I, I wonder... In other ways, what do you have in terms of advice for other people who hold similar identities as you and are trying to navigate in a different way? You know, they've had this mm-hmm. epiphany during the pandemic of there has to be another way. I want to see what that is.
1: I'm going to tell two stories to answer that question. The first story is when I was working at um, I was working at the Samaritan House, which is the uh, homeless shelter downtown Denver. I had a resident come up to me one day and tell me he was he was a black man. He came up to me. He said that he he sees racism from staff to to the residents. My first thought was, of course, very selfish. Which is, I'm sorry, what did I do? Uh, Was it me? What like okay? No, no, no. Like you're not the problem, not right now at least. And uh, I was very flattered that he came to me, Mm -hmm. and I immediately had no idea what to do. Yeah. So I went to we had I think two or maybe three people on staff who were black. I went to all of them and I asked them what can I do to better understand what he's going through? Because that's this will never happen to me. And there's a woman that I worked with. I asked her that question. What can I do to better understand what he's going through? Cause this will never happen to me. He said, and she, she looked at me and she said, yes, it has. You've been discriminated against, not because of how you look, not because of your skin, but you've been discriminated against. So, you know how it feels. It might not be the same, but the feeling is the same. Mm-hmm. You have felt discrimination. And so, you know that that doesn't feel good. Mm-hmm. And you can use that to empathize with what he's going through. Mm-hmm. And at the time I disagreed with what she said. And I thought, I felt like it was very dangerous for me to like put myself in his shoes. And because of what you said, we like to rank ourselves and I didn't want to like act like I knew what he was going through. And, and, you know, like, Oh, this white dude, you know, says he's, you know, he knows what we're going to. And I didn't want that. But what she said has stuck with me for years. And it's become really foundational to, to, my, all the work that I do in social justice which is you've experienced discrimination before
0: mm-hmm.
1: it doesn't have to be the same we don't have to rank it and but you know what it feels like and it doesn't mm-hmm. feel good that's the bottom mm-hmm. line it doesn't feel good no one enjoyed that experience mm-hmm. so that's the first thing the first thing is recognize you you can relate yeah don't compare but relate okay and the second um, the second piece of that was um, on my podcast my most recent interview um, that we just recently actually talked about, uh, I, had a, I had a gay man on. He was a gay Filipino man, and he works in Washington D.C. And he he told me about what a lot of people do, and I've and I've talked to a lot of people about this since then. He walks into a room and he scans the room to see how safe it is for him to be himself mm-hmm. in that room, and that blew my mind. I have never once done that. Never once did I walk into a room and look around to see if I was safe to be myself mm-hmm. because I assume, as a straight white man, that I'm safe in any room that I go in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so that blew my mind that him, not only him, but so many people do that. And I would be willing to venture a guess that you've done that before. Yeah. I, I, I talked to a friend of mine who's a, a Black man here in Denver. He told me, he goes, every time, every time. He says, sometimes I show up early to do it.
0: Yeah, to get the right place in exactly. case something jumps off. Yep.
1: Right. <laughs> that blew my mind. So knowing that people do that, my challenge to people with similar identities to me is to do the same thing we can walk in the room and we can scan the room too.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Because in that conversation I had with him, he, he acknowledged that he's kind of a champion for a lot of people who, who aren't able to stand up for themselves. Mm-hmm. Because there's a lot of people that are, it's really hard. It takes a lot of courage to stand up and be that person in that room. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of people that have a lot at stake that they could lose their job if they stand up too too much. Yes. And, and my challenge for, for people like me is, that we can do that work for them. And not that we understand everything, but we can analyze how safe am I making this room for someone who's not like me?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: How would you know
0: the, that? But well, That's an interesting perspective. How would, you, how would you know that? How would you I have
1: that? no idea. But the, for me, the first step is asking that question, realizing that right. other people are doing that because, right. because the, the ignorance of, of not knowing that that's something that happens to me is potentially very damaging. Mm-hmm. And I guess the, the things that I would do would be let's, inv- let's invite those voices. Mm-hmm. If I'm in a room of pr- primarily white people and there's a black woman sitting in the corner ready to bolt if things go bad, and she hasn't talked at all, ask, let's ask what she thinks. Yeah, she's in that room for a reason. Let's ask what she thinks. And and I don't I I think it needs we need to take the responsibility off of those people to stand up for themselves and mm-hmm. invite them instead. Mm-hmm. And kind of like I said earlier not give permission for them to speak. We don't own that room, but invite them to, to speak as equals to us. Right. And the more that we can do that, the more I, I think we will create an inviting space. And again, this is coming from me, a straight white man. So I don't know. That's my best guess. So mm-hmm. the other thing I would say that we can do is we need to invite that criticism. Mm-hmm. We need to be open to being told, not, not not only just be open to being told what we can do better, but ask what we can do to be better. Right. Okay. Because we don't know what we don't know. And and we can't, and the more we assume we might get it right, but that doesn't seem like the tracker record we have so far.
0: Yes, I agree with you. And I think particularly at work, if you can't to even entertain these questions or to entertain thinking about them and then taking some action on it, this whole idea of being compassionate, you have to really look at the culture because if mm-hmm. or how we do things, I won't use the fancy word of culture, but how we do things here. Because if you can't ask questions around things that seem ordinary, you're definitely going to step, not step into something as um, personal yeah. as what you're talking about in terms of creating safe space. Because I'm, I'm visualizing, you know, what would I have done when I was, you know, in my, in my days of working in corporate, suited up. You know, going to that meeting, trying to make sure I had everything right. You know, am I in the right place? What chair am I going to sit in? Who am I going to sit next to? How do I look? Sit in a place where I'm looking at everybody, trying to look for my moment when I can say something and it'll be accepted, etc. When I'm doing that calculus in my head. I don't know what I would have done if somebody, I'm not even sure I would have heard it in those workplaces. Mm. If somebody had come up to me and said, hey, Denise, I know you're going to that budget meeting, blah, 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 blah. It's going to be treacherous. Everybody's going to be looking for their own money, et cetera, et cetera. I want you to know that it's just an argument about the facts, not about you personally. So Mm. how can we make this a safe space? I'm not even sure I would have heard it. Right. Because my mind was set up for something else.
1: Right. And I think a lot of us, I'll speak for myself, something that I'm obviously very aware of and nervous of a lot of times is coming across like this, the ally, the safe person in the room, right? Because I don't, I don't want to be attached to that white savior, as we've right. called it in some spaces, that label. And so let's not put people on the spot when we do this all the time. It doesn't always have to be public. Mm-hmm. Why can't, if you walk into a room, if, and I now know that you're likely to scan the room to see how safe it is maybe before, maybe after the meeting, I can ask, hey, did you feel like this was a safe space for you? Mm -hmm. And give them the the opportunity to say yes or no. And why?
0: Let me hear. Let me let me talk to you. And I think that's the key. Having the relationship, because I don't think I could get it. I I would ever have, Mm have thought about it if I didn't have the invitation and the prep for it.
1: Yeah, the, the ideas, the, the best ideas that we can implement to make spaces more inviting, more safe are not going to come from the people who have traditionally made them not feel safe. Mm-hmm. So we I, I, I don't feel like I'm ever going to have the right answer. I'm not going to come up with it on my own because I I'm not the person who feels unsafe. Right. The person who feels unsafe knows what, why that's unsafe mm-hmm. or has a better idea, at least. Yeah. And so we, we need to find those answers. We need to ask for them.
0: Mm-hmm. Good. Um, so, you know, this has been great. Please tell us, how can people hear more of these conversations? Um, because I'm telling you, listeners, uh, these are really rich conversations that he's having on Epic's podcast. How do people find you? How do they connect with you?
1: Absolutely. So you can find us on any of these amazing social media websites um, at Epic's podcast, Epic's with an S, um, pod, P-O-D. Epic's pod is my our, our handle for any of those uh, social media platforms and you can you can search on Apple Spotify epics Pod, the epics podcast and find me on there and uh, or you can you know go to my website epicspodcast.com and uh, find any way to contact me through any of those places.
0: All right, okay. Thank you so much for being a wonderful guest and sharing not just your story but to- helping people really see it from a different lens. Um, ideas and how it shows up in so many different ways in the world and, and encouraging them to ask mm, uncomfortable
1: questions. Yes, ma'am. Thank you so much for having me on. I've loved it. I really appreciate the time.
0: Very cool. Very cool. And with that, it's a wrap. We'll talk to you next week. Bye. That's a wrap. And I'm Denise Cooper. And you've been listening to Closing the Gap with Denise Cooper. Let me thank my good friend Ivan G. Hall for the background music. I'd like to ask you to do three things. One, if you liked it, share it with your friends. Let's build up our community. Two, subscribe so that you don't miss when a new episode drops. And lastly, if you've got a question or comment, leave it below. I'd love to hear what you thought was good, what I could do better, and what topics you'd like to hear about. Let me thank my guests one more last time. Thank you for listening. I'll see you next week. Bye.